0: This is a podcast from 3 R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Jacqueline Doughty is going to chat to us about an exhibition she's curated, Play On, The Art of Sport, which is opening tomorrow at the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery. Jacqueline, welcome to Triple R. Thank
1: you. I'm happy to be here.
0: So this is uh, an exhibition which... Has, you've essentially curated the best of the entries to the Basil Sellers Art Prize.
1: Oh, we're careful about saying that. Over the 10 years of the prize, there were five shows over 80 artworks. They were all amazing. So for us, it was more about trying to represent the diversity of themes and mediums and um, sports that were covered across those 80 artworks. So
0: for people who aren't familiar with the Basil Sellers Art Prize, it it, it ran for a, a finite number of years, so mm-hmm. rather than being an ongoing prize presented annually, et cetera, uh, one of the things that always fascinated me about it is that... It, particularly around the rest of the country and indeed internationally, there sometimes seems to be a divide between art and sport, as if you're allowed to like one and not the other. Uh, here in Melbourne, that's certainly not the case. I know so many artists who are also mad football fans. Uh, but why do you think there is this kind of schism between the world of art and the world of sport?
1: Um, I don't know, but it's definitely something that Basil Sellers noticed too, and that was the emphasis impetus behind the prize for him. He is an art collector and also a huge sports fan. He was a sports person himself. He played basketball. So um, the art that he was collecting, he, he really always felt like art was a way for artists to reflect on society at large and whether that was politics or religion or human relationships, but he saw a huge gap with sport, that there just wasn't much being represented. And so he introduced the prize as a way to address that. He wanted to encourage artists to think about sport in their art and also at the same time he wanted to attract new audiences to art by this very popular subject matter and it worked. um, The art that was inspired by this prize was incredible and also it was a very popular show. The audiences at the Potter would skyrocket during the Basil Sellers Art Prize.
0: How, in terms of the range of artists who uh, responded and entered the prize, what kind of range of artistic styles and mediums are we talking about here?
1: So the whole gamut from painting and sculpture through to sort of performative works. There was a community project that Gabrielle De Vitri did that is represented by a video in the tour and lots of video work, which I think is an interesting reflection on the way we access sport. Like, yes, a lot of people go to the actual event, but a lot of people are also watching sport through their TV screens through their smartphones and so a lot of artists were working with video to reflect that use of technology in sport today.
0: And in terms of then interrogating the idea of sport, how were artists then responding to that idea rather than just celebrating sport? And I'm sure some of the entries uh, and artists were doing just that, celebrating the idea of uh, human endurance, of physical fitness, uh, the the power and prowess of the body. But I suspect that quite a few artists were then also kind of analysing the idea of sport and what it Says or perhaps doesn't say Mm. about society?
1: It became clear right from the first exhibition that artists were looking at sport as a very powerful platform through which to think about society more broadly. So there were a number of themes that came up again and again across those 10 years, whether it was gender equality or... um, the importance of sport to Indigenous rural communities or, say, community building, the importance to migrant communities of sport. There's a work in the tour by Khaled Sabsabi, whose family immigrated from Lebanon in the 70s, and his video is about the Western Sydney Wanderers and how that team becomes a real focus of immigrant identity in this new country, this need to sort of draw on the old but also on the new to to figure out who you are in this new place. So really, deep themes that go to just being human that, that their works are not just about sport
0: one of the things that i find fascinating about sport and i'm, I'm not a huge sports fan uh, i will happily declare <laughs> that um throughout my childhood adolescence uh and and sport and i were we had a very antagonistic relationship uh, And as I've aged, I've come to appreciate some aspects of sport. Uh, I can can go to and enjoy a a good game of footy. There's something exciting about that. Um, And there is also something that I do recognise, the 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 way sport can unite people. Mm. Uh, um, yes, there is tribalism in sport, which I sometimes find quite confronting, um, particularly in, in our current era when there seems to be so much kind of us versus them mentality. But sport uh, can certainly unite people and bring people together as well. Um, do you think art has the same power to unite people as sport does?
1: Yes, it does. And you see it in... The bigger events, say festivals, um, bring huge numbers of people together like White Nights brings massive amounts of people into Melbourne and it becomes a celebration of community community as much as a celebration of art and there are huge audiences going to the National Gallery too. So art really does have a power to draw crowds as sport does and um, also touches people at a very deep level Whether Um, it's the way that art has the ability to tap into our emotions, our relationships, um, the ideas that we feel very passionate about, perhaps controversial ideas, whether it is racism or violence or war, art can really get to the heart of um what it means to be human in the same way that sport does they they really share that quality what
0: impact does knowing that it has to tour and has to be presented at different galleries in different size exhibition spaces how does that shape the exhibition that you curate and present
1: we had to be careful that the works were strong, that they that we could transport them. There was one work that we would have liked to have shown, but it was just too fragile. It involved um, glass and we were just worried that it would break. The tour is going to last for two years. So you have to have works that are hardy, but also we wanted to reflect that diversity. So there is a ceramic work in the show and it's... It, just very well created, it's safe, but we wanted to reflect that ceramics actually did appear again and again across the 10 years of the prize, which would be unexpected, I think, in th- contemporary art.
0: Yeah, why do you think kind of ceramics were used and, and presented in the exhibition?
1: Well, just generally in the art world, ceramics is having a revival, um, so that was reflected by the prize. But I think artists like to use it because it, was, it seemed incongruous within the world of sport, to be dealing with ceramics, it seems perhaps like a bit of a, a fuddy duddy <laughs> um, medium, but it's not at all. Artists are using it in really interesting ways these days. In the most recent prize, one of the artists made an analogy between the collectible, the ceramic collectibles and sports trophies. So they were making those sorts of connections.
0: It's fascinating to see the way individual artists respond to a theme and tease out ideas and particularly uh, when you've got uh, a decade of of art uh, and artists to explore. Were you ever surprised by themes that echoed or repeated throughout the years of the prize?
1: No, I think that it kind of reflected the way sport is considered more broadly. I think the government also uses sport in very particular ways for community building or thinking about child development or um, and these sorts of ideas came out through art as well. So the, the idea that sport is very important for young boys in dealing with depression came up again and again. So Richard Lua is one of the artists who's represented in the tour. He also won the final prize and he he is a volunteer coach at a community um, sports centre in Preston and he teaches boxing to boys who are kind of at risk and he feels very strongly that sport is a way for boys to build esteem and to feel like they have a role in society. So sort of the same ideas that come up again and again more broadly, speaking about sport, came up in the prize.
0: And uh, you mentioned uh, the importance of sport for Indigenous communities, for example. How was that? portrayed in the exhibition i know that artists like uh richard bell and tony albert for example uh had entered and i know uh, tony was a prize winner mm. uh several years ago as well so how did the kind of that indigenous aspect of the mm. uh, uh, express itself
1: so those two works were justifiably angry works they have a very strong political agenda so richard bells was looking at that um Iconic image from the 1968 Olympic Games when an Australian sprinter sort of joined in solidarity with two African American runners when um, they did the Black, the Black Power salute. So his painting refers to that moment, um, and Tony Albert's work refers to two instances of racism on the football field. That um, happened. One of them quite recently, Adam Goods, but Nicky Winmar also about a decade ago. That that iconic moment when he lifted up his shirt and pointed at his stomach to, to express pride in his um, his identity. But there is also that there's a celebratory celebratory strain to a lot of the works too. So Josie and Dini Kounov Pediaras' work is about the importance of football in the cohesiveness of regional communities, regional Indigenous communities and it's a beautiful painting, sort of a bird's eye view of a field with the red earth the field has as many local community members as players on it and dogs like it's a real sense that it's it's a carnival, it's a celebration that families are meeting up and getting together around the side of the football field and then in front of the painting there's some really beautiful carved wooden figures and, and the dog is there too so it's a really charming work and a joyous work and really speaks of our sport is far more than a game to these communities
0: fantastic i've been chatting with jacqueline dowdy about the exhibition jacqueline thank you so much for coming in
1: thanks for having me
0: So I'm joined by Alison Crogan and Robert Reid, uh, who are launching a new website called Witness Performance uh, this Saturday. Uh, it's a response to a crisis in arts journalism. Uh, is a I think is the easiest way to describe why you've created the site. But uh, Alison and Rob, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having us. Hi,
2: Richard. Um,
0: Alison, I'll start with you. Um, We've seen over the last few years uh, newspapers sacking journalists, laying off staff, criticism uh, increasingly sidelined and informed arts commentary increasingly marginalised and shrunk. So from two pages of commentary in newspapers to one page to half a page. Uh, Is Witness uh, specifically trying to turn this around?
2: Well, as much as a small website can, Richard... (laughs) I mean, we, we want to address what is becoming a bigger and bigger abyss in, in discussion, public discussion of the performing arts. In particular, we're a performing arts website which covers, you know, theatre, dance, various kinds of performance. And, of course, one of the things that has been happening, as you said, is that uh, there's less and less criticism, full stop, So Fairfax sacked a whole bunch of arts journalists last year um, and have been cutting their coverage for years now, actually. And last year we saw Real Time Vanish, which was an important alternative website for um, complex discussion of particularly experimental performing arts. Um, it's been pretty dark for the last... I don't remember a year as bad as 2017. I don't know. What do you think?
0: I mean... It was it, a pretty kind of grim year. And it was, yeah. yeah. The um, the announcement at, as you say, at the, in late December, I think it was around the 20th of December, that Real Time said, we've just published our final edition. The, the good news with Real Time is that they uh, are spending this year kind of Curating the site so it becomes a permanent archive and repository, yeah. which is great. But um, Limelight uh, almost went That's under right, uh, yeah. just just recently as well. So yeah, things are concerning. Things
2: are grim. So um, and, the, and Witness came about through basically through Facebook. So there you go. Um, there was a, a kind of quite a, an interesting discussion on my Facebook page where about a particular dance work, where a whole lot of people were weighing in, sort of talking about it. And I suddenly went. Oh, I miss Theatre Notes, which is the blog I used to run, which closed in 2012, and which which was notable for a lot of really interesting discussion. And Rob um, basically messaged me and said, "Well, how about you know you start reviewing, and I want to do videos on Australian theatre history, and that's where Witness." kind of started. So that was March last year. So basically we've been talking about it since then. And so it's not merely a response to the huge kind of structural crisis that's going on in mainstream media at the moment. It's also something that's coming out of our desire to see uh, just a bit more um, historical discussion One of the huge problems we have in Australian performance is how everything is forgotten.
0: Yeah, which is uh, a a perfect point to bring you in, Rob, because it's something that... Uh, as I also miss Theatre Notes, uh, Alison's blog, because it was something that Alison would regularly comment on, the fact that we're repeating the wheel and people have forgotten uh, a cycle of works that were made previously, et cetera, yeah. and, and, and so forth. So as a theatre historian, how important is it to you to make sure that... Uh, uh, Witness doesn't just document but
3: archives and preserves. Oh, it's incredibly important, that kind of um, uh, documentation of shows, but not just the shows, um, the community that makes them. Um, So part of the research I've done over the last 10 years of the PhD was um, reading the reviews, like the collective reviews of the last 30 years, uh, in Melbourne, I should say, Um, and not only do you get a sense of, oh, well, this show, that show, that was popular, that was not popular, but you get a really fantastic sense of who's who, who's doing what, who's connected to who, etc. And that's a really important thing to be able to um, refer back to and to understand in order to understand how we got to where we are today. And we spend a lot of time, I've noticed over the uh, last sort of 10 years, talking about how the industry is structured, how the community is structured, how it gets funded, how this, that and the other, in a complete vacuum around how did it get this way, um, which is sort of... Typified by the, um, uh, the notion that before 1950s there was no Australian theater, like, um, which it's is not true. Is patently not true. There's 150 years' worth of European tradition here, and then before that, thousands of years of indigenous performance. Um, but we keep uh, kind of erasing those histories really sort of about every 50 years. So the first wave and the next wave considered that nothing happened before them despite 100 years' worth of J.C. Williamson's and then J.C. Williamson's were sort of trying to get rid of and get move away from the convict era theatre, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And... What's bad for uh, us, I think, as contemporary artists is that we lose connection to those kind of longer traditions of performance making, lose uh, training traditions, and also lose connection with scripts that have been written here and stories that have been told here, so that we think that the first Australian play was Summer of the 17th Doll. Great play as it might be, it was not the first. So, yeah, that's kind of my bent with it, really, and I've been wanting to... It's been bugging me for a while, and I've been wanting to do something about it. No one will publish anything, so we have to do it ourselves. <laughs>
0: Now, I find it fascinating that the two of you are launching uh, Witness uh, simultaneously up in Sydney. We've just seen the launch of Mm. Audrey Mm. Journal, Mm -hmm. kind of, again, um, a website and repository which is around criticism and conversation. Mm. um, uh, And that's uh, Alyssa and Jason Blake, uh, a husband and wife couple, kind of running that site. So, Witness Performance will not just be Melbourne-focused. Absolutely
2: not. I mean, obviously, we're based in Melbourne. There's also a new website in Perth called Seesaw which is coming out of the same conditions, I think. I mean, I think there is a kind of zeitgeist thing where it's got that things are so bad that in a, in a bunch of cities people are going, well, what can we do about this? And um, <clears throat> so we've been, we're obviously all talking to each other and um, because the great strength of blogs... Um, particularly between like 2005 and 2010, where there were a lot of blogs all talking to each other, is that strength of networking and discourse and discussion and and furious argument between you know different people with different opinions, which was so exciting and totally engaging, and it shifts the um, shifts the emphasis of discussion away from. What is particularly pernicious, I think, in in art's criticism is the idea of judgment, Mm. you know, whether something's good or bad, whatever that means, to that's kind of not so interesting, but I reckon this um, and somebody else might passionately disagree. So it's more about the discussion of the ideas that are feeding into it and the responses that people have across a diversity of opinion.
0: And one of the things that the site will also be doing is encouraging that communication offline as well as online. You've already had, uh, and I happily participated in, uh, the the first kind of witness uh, performance conversation in which a group of people booked on the same night, went to the theatre and sat around talking about the work afterwards rather than just five minutes of, what did you think? Oh, I liked it. And
2: then having a glass of
3: wine and talking about something else. A focused conversation around work. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk, oh, I'll talk about that? Um, so part of the reason um, or part of the thing that really interests me and I think both of us about the affordance that a website uh, like witness authors is that it's not um a broadcast media right like these kind of things are not about we sit here say our thing and everybody listens they're kind of critical nodes for everybody to come together and talk and and converse and that happens really well in real life as well and so once you've got the conversation started online being able to bring those people together in the theatre and see the same show at the same time and respond exactly to, I saw this, I saw that, I think is really important for building rebuilding that kind of critical community that has been separated from itself over the last sort of 100, 150 years for various reasons. Um, And so bringing them together to actually put faces to names and start that kind of communal process of talking about a show, um, I don't know, it just expands it and makes it more of a community rather than a magazine. And it's fun. It's also fun.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, The next conversations you're doing, uh, I think, are part of a a dance house?
2: Yes, we're doing an extended um, live night for our first one, so it's a bit different. We're doing a couple of workshops for people who are unsure about approaching contemporary dance. And then on Saturday when we launch our March issue... um, We'll announce our year-long program. So we've got a very exciting program of shows lined up for witness witnessing I mean, witnessing. Yeah. yeah. So um, and the other important thing about witness is that we have uh, an emerging critic program. So we're very excited that uh, our secret emerging critic, First Nations emerging critic, is uh, she'll be writing. Um, Essays and reviews for us all through the year.
0: And that's a paid position?
2: Absolutely a paid position above industry rates. Um, And that's very important. That's an important part of Witness actually is that we want to be paid. I did um, theatre notes for no money and that was a very conscious decision on my part and I could afford to at the time. But, um, you know, we've all got poorer. Uh, The reason why the blog culture vanished in Melbourne was everybody got poorer, everybody got so tired, and it's a lot of work to do this.
0: Yeah. I can certainly testify to that. <laughs> uh, so one of the things about uh, Witness will be, you've got some support from, uh, funding support from Creative Victoria, yeah. which is great, uh, and you're also asking people to support the blog uh, through monthly donations. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that, Rob.
3: Um, so It's a sort of reflection of the fact that um, despite the fact that newspaper coverage and all of those things are disappearing, the need to talk about these things still exists within the community. And as the opportunities sort of disappear for that, um, uh, that need becomes even stronger. And so it's, it's unlikely and it's not particularly healthy, I think we can d- debate the economic politics of it um, as, as much as you like, maybe off-air, um, that um, that a, 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 an effort like this be supported solely by, like, government funding or what have you like that or being able to rely on specific uh, inputs and only one or two of them, as opposed to we can harness the, the strength of the community not only to um, uh, generate conversation but also, also to support the work that actually happens to do this sort of thing. Um, and so... Yeah, it's a kind of commercial enterprise in that way, right? Like it's, we offer a product, which is a space in which to talk about these things and the information to contextualise them. And to keep it going, everybody pays five, ten bucks or whatever they can, which is kind of like coming to a club actually now that I think about it. Like being in your, in your youth theatre company and turning, I'm going, here's my three dollars for the week. It's not really different to that.
0: Yeah. I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing Witness unfold and grow. I'm certainly looking forward to more robust discussions. Mm. Um, and I'm looking forward to, the, to learning more about the history of Australian theatre as well because I'm happy to admit that uh, there are quite a few gaps in my theatre knowledge.
3: So, and, it, and it's a great story, I have to say. There are some really, really great characters and stories in it. So, so
0: if you want more information about... Uh, Alison and Rob's new site, Witness... Just jump online, witnessperformance.com. Uh, there's already uh, a number of posts up on the site. Alison's just recently returned from Perth Festival where, amongst other things, she was delighted by Barbershop Chronicles. Oh, yes. yeah, which What
2: a great show that I, was. I
0: really enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I found the ending just a trifle earnest and it, just a trifle neat in the way it kind of had to stitch things together. But wonderful performances. Oh, uh, wonderful. And, yeah, really...
2: Great play too,
0: yeah, yeah. So, uh, Witness Performance, there will be conversation, discussion, theatre, arguments, history, uh, and you can get involved and support it. So, witnessperformance.com. Thank you both for coming in and thank you both for setting up Witness Performance. I look forward to seeing it grow. Thanks thank you, us. Richard. Spiro Economopoulos is the program director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, which recently launched its 28th festival
4: program. Spiro, nice to have you back in. Thanks, Richard. Nice to have you. And I've got to say, you're the only person that gets my name right, so thank you for that as well. Uh, (laughs) It does help that I've known you for kind of like 20 20 years or more. But yes, so... um,
0: what? How healthy is the state of queer cinema at the moment?
4: Um, it's very strong, I have to say. I, 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 at our launch this year, I was uh, saying how lucky I felt that I've come into the role just at a point where I think queer cinema is really... I think experiencing a really uh, fruitful, bountiful kind of renaissance. Not a renaissance, really, but there's just so much work out there and obviously we've seen a lot of big films that have come out last year like last year we had so many classic movies like Moonlight, Call Me By Your Name, God's Own Country and they're just the ones that got released in mainstream cinema you know and then there is all this other work which is where I think film festivals like ours come into play and are really important for that reason. One of the things that
0: fascinates me, and uh, having been many years ago now, admittedly, on the programming committee of the Queer yeah. Film Festival, uh, I wondered because uh, queer cinema is becoming more accessible, more mainstream, mm. yeah. does that deprive you of quality films?
4: No, I... No, and in the beginning I was really worried about it and, you know, especially at the start there was a lot of conversations about Netflix and, you know, the role of streaming services and the impact. But um, in actual fact it, it it sort of forces you to dig deeper and look for um, other work and there is so much kind of work out there that in actual fact um, it kind of forces you to be really creative and actually look for really... Interesting original work and um, it's definitely out there. And, you know, people always come up to me after the festival and they're like, oh, you know, where can we see this film? And we missed it. And I'm like, well, actually nowhere, unfortunately. So this is your chance. Um, and it's also a chance uh, significantly to see a range of queer
0: cinema from uh, non-English-speaking countries. Exactly. So that, which has been really fascinating to see the growth of queer uh, international queer cinema mm. rather than just clusters of films from the UK, yeah. the USA, Canada.
4: Exactly. We've got some great films from Brazil this year, for example, and, like, there's, a, I mean, I think a lot of the, you know, um, Spanish-language countries have been bringing out such great movies, actually, a f- few sort of Finnish films and, like, it's, yeah, really, really rich. What's the style of Finnish queer cinema, like? Oh, uh, it's, uh, it's picturesque, <laughs> i got to say, in a lot of ways. Uh-oh. Yeah.
0: The mind boggles.
4: Well, look, let's
0: uh, dive into the program and and, uh, talk about some of the highlights. It's Mm -hmm. always difficult to ask a a, a film programmer to say what are your favourites because everything Uh, is chosen for a different reason. So we'll we'll keep the favourites idea out of it. Um, But what are the... Give us a couple of films that you think will really resonate with the audience here in Melbourne.
4: Well, actually, I thought I'd start with one film that I know might resonate with your audience, uh, in fact, which is uh, Queer Core, How to Punk a Revolution, which is a really fabulous documentary about the queer Core movement. And if, you know, you don't know... About it, it's basically uh, queercore, homo core. I think it was called as well. So it's sort of a movement that came out in the eighties and nineties, um, which you will probably be very familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, let's just say I was somewhat intimately involved yes, with its flowering exactly. in, in, in Melbourne. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so it's a really it's a really exciting docker that looks at. Um, and actually, I think what's interesting about the documentary is that uh, obviously queercore and homo core challenged the you know hegemony of the mainstream, gay subculture and i sort of think that it's come at an interesting time now when we're looking at you know mainstream acceptance marriage equality and it was interesting watching a a movement that actually so butted against that and was like saying you know you know sort of rebelling against that essentially so it's sort of fascinating for that reason alone
0: the uh, and also the fact that it was simultaneously um kind of pushing against the the very Rigid, straight, masculine exactly. cliches of the the punk scene, yeah. as because by that stage punk had grown into hardcore, yes, and, and, and which had this really kind of coded form of yeah. masculine behaviour. So yeah. it, uh, queercore was literally queering kind of uh, the the punk scene as well. Totally, so, yeah. yeah.
4: And talking about the idea of you know safe spaces at these venues, and you know like you know who was allowed to come to these gigs, and you know we're having these conversations now about women at live venues and events, and so it was kind of. an interesting conversation that was happening back then and there's some amazing people in it. You know, Beth Ditto, Kathleen Hanna, Peaches, John Waters, of course. You can't not have a (laughs) jocko and not have John Waters in it. Uh, What about
0: Australian content?
4: Uh, Yeah, well, it's really exciting actually because, I mean... You know, it's always really hard trying to sort of secure Australian queer content. So when it comes into the office, I'm deliriously excited. And we have two Australian world premieres this year, um, one called The uh, Five Provocations, which is by a, a filmmaker called Angie Black. Um, and uh, that that's an interesting film as well in that it... Uh, it it features a lot of very familiar local cabaret theatre performers that are, I think a lot of people would be familiar with. More Davies, the Town Bikes, uh, Yana Lana. Um, so I think it's kind of got that fun element, and their roles in it are, are quite interesting. We're not not saying too much about it, but you know they're the five provocations basically. But um, um, yeah, that's a kind of really fun film, and another really lovely movie called So Long, which is a, and both of these films I have to say are... Shot in Melbourne, they're independently financed, and you know, So Long is this really low key, lovely sort of breakup drama basically about these two women and who go their separate ways, and it's about. You know, picking up the pieces after that, so it's really nice. It's
0: been described as a mumblecore film, yeah,
4: as well. a lesbian mumblecore. I like, I like that actually. That was, that were my words, but I thought, yeah, that's that's a kind of good way to describe it. Yeah.
0: And uh, there's always the Australian Shorts package as well, which is always a, a fascinating for me yes. highlight of the festival to see what local filmmakers, often student filmmakers, not always, but yeah. kind of,
4: uh, and to s-
0: see some people at the start of what will become really yeah. significant careers.
4: Yeah, and like we'll just talking about right now, you know, the Australian features and a lot of these people, you know, starting from the ranks of, you know, shorts packages and festivals and then kind of graduating to bigger films. So, I mean, the Australian shorts is always exciting to see filmmaking talent and you're watching it develop and, you know, watching it grow and so that's great. I think one of the films featured actually in it is um, Mrs. McCutcheon which won the Best Film at MIF this year. Yeah. Best Short, yeah.
0: Um, Going back to the documentaries I think people will be particularly uh, interested in McKellen playing the part.
4: Yes. Because
0: Ian McKellen's Sir Ian McKellen, mm. uh, the actor has become a uh, quite a significant kind of uh, figure in terms of uh, his queer activism alongside yep. his, uh, his acting career.
4: That's right, and yeah. Yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, after you. I was just going to say, yeah, and what I really loved about the doco and what surprised me about it was... Um, how uh how much it goes into that so the documentary really sort of goes deep into his coming out process he came although he was out to family and friends he came out in public quite later in his life and the film talks about that process and that uh i guess the politicization of uh Ian McKellar as a you know an actor and a presence to kind of support you know the queer community and a lot of the you know aids charities that he's been involved with and it's a really interesting documentary about that as well
0: um, another British film that I've got my eye on, uh, Postcards from London, uh, and the reason I'm intrigued by it is because of uh, one of the the, the lead actor, uh, Harris mm-hmm. Dickinson, who was in... Uh, Beatrats. Beatrats, in which he was so convincingly American. Yes, um, yeah.
4: I know. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but he was originally uh, looked at for the part in God's Own Country. No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. and he obviously didn't get it, but um, uh, yes... Uh, Postcards from London is a really interesting film. It, it, while I was watching it, it really reminded me of like early Derek Jarman and especially elements of Fassbinder, like Corel like its visual palette. And wow. I'm actually it's one of those. There's always like three or four films I kind of go, I'm going to make sure I go and see this on the big screen when it plays at the festival, and that's one of them because it visually it's really it's very, really beautiful. And there's also,
0: I mean, it's one of the frustrating things that I remember about being involved as a programmer. You're watching films on DVD at home or a a Vimeo link. uh, And it it doesn't do the films justice. But there's also something about the communal experience of watching a a film with an audience
4: uh, is just, yeah. It's really palatable and I think that's one of the things that I I think makes the festival stand out in that way. It is a a real community event and people, uh, it's, it's, it's another opportunity for everyone to kind of come together people see films together with groups or you know with friends or partners and um it has that kind of real element of and it's always exciting you're right seeing a film with a whole bunch of people and you know postcards from london you know it's the closing night film this year of BFI flare which is exciting it's an australian premiere so again you know we this is an opportunity to see the film first
0: uh, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival is running from the fifteenth to the twenty-sixth of March, MQFF.com.au is where you go to, to uh, book your tickets and browse the program and of course you can pick up a copy of the a hard copy of the program at all your familiar bookshops, cafes, etc. Yeah. etc et yeah. Um if people were to, just people who've not been to the festival before, for example, whether they're um, cinephiles uh, who just want to see films different to what they would normally see yeah. at MIF, for example, or whether they're kind of uh, newly out members of the queer community, what's a good starting point?
4: What's well, a good starting point? Well, you know, I would kind of pick things... Oh, look, I would take told them to take... Take some risks, basically. You know, I'm sure that we've got some really great mainstream films playing in the festival and they're always crowd-pleasers and they're, you know, really strong films like Ideal Home. But I would say go and see Body Electric, for example, you know, which is a really, you know, fantastic... um, I think that's a Brazilian drama, actually. I was talking about that before, actually. Um, Yeah, um, I would say check that out. It's a really wonderful film about... uh, a young man trying to balance work life with his social life, basically, which is something we're all we can all relate to, basically, and um, it's a really sensual sort of you know drama about that, which is really good.
0: So that's Body Electric. Yeah. So that's uh, screening on Sunday, the eighteenth of March. Um, I Dream in Another Language looks fantastic.
4: Yeah, that is great. That was on a Myth this year, and I caught it um, when actually when I was in Framley. But that's a, a really wonderful movie, a Mexican uh, film about a, a young man who's a, a linguist who goes to a small town where this made-up language for the film actually um, is dying out and there's only two people that know how to speak it and these two men are not talking to each other and so the film goes into their history about who they were and what they meant to each other it's a really beautiful film it's so good I really recommend that one. Uh, and just finally uh, lesbian highlights
0: there's going to be uh, heaps i Again
4: sure. it's actually a, a very very strong program Starting with our closing night film, which is Bex, um, which is a, a lesbian drama about a musician who, uh, after a really messy breakup, comes back home to stay with her mother, who's Christine Lardy, Lena Hall, who uh, plays the lead, uh, was one of the main cast members of the original Hedwig and the Angry Inch in the US and the theatre. Um, That's a fantastic movie, really, really great drama. Um, The Feels is a really funny movie about a group of uh, friends get together for a hen's night essentially and it all sort of Goes a bit pear-shaped after some ecstasy and alcohol, and uh, <laughs> as it does. As it does. Uh, I'm looking
0: forward to diving into this year's Melbourne Queer Film Festival, which is running from the 15th to the 26th of March, mqff.com.au. Uh, as uh, Spiro quite rightly guessed, I am very interested in the, the documentary about queer. F- Good, I queer hope core. to see you there. Uh, you will actually see me DJing yes. uh, uh, in the <laughs> festival lounge before the film. Very so, exciting. Uh, I may that. drag out some old queercore classics. I hope you do, actually, yeah. Yeah. Spiro Economophilus, thank you for joining us and uh, congratulations on the program for this year's Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Thank you. I'll see you at the festival. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community
1: radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.